You're listening to the Topco Business Unusual Podcast. Now, the Business Unusual Podcast. Learn from the greatest minds in business today. Interviews hosted by Ralph Fletcher. Learn how to improve business, get tips from industry leaders, and be motivated by real-life experience. Topco. Business unusual. Hey guys, um, thanks for joining us today on this podcast. I just wanted to go through and just explain our goal of the Business Unusual podcast and, and really what we're trying to achieve at Topco. We're looking at helping organizations within South Africa and, and seeing how we can grow and do more business. And the way that we see that we can do that is by putting you in touch with those organizations that are shooting the lights out, those organizations that are blowing up their sales through their customer service, through innovation. What we've decided to do is to obviously you know, share these insights, these, these critical interviews of these business leaders from Africa and around the world. And, and we do that through the podcast, through our newsletter, and through our summits and awards. You know, for us, we're about introducing you to a trusted network of great companies in Africa. So guys, go to the platform, look it up. There's some great podcasts, there's some newsletters that you should be part of, but there's also some great events that you should either be looking to get involved in. And, and uh, if you're needing help being introduced to someone, hit me up. Thanks, guys. Good afternoon and welcome to the Topco Business Unusual podcast. Today, I'm here with Mr. Colin Coleman, who's a fellow and lecturer at Yale University. Is it the Jackson Institute of Global Affairs? I think that's Correct. where you are at the moment. And the former CEO of Goldman Sachs. What a job. Um, and I think the last time I saw you, I took a picture with you. It was me, Leanne Manis, yourself, and Jarbu, and I put it up on my LinkedIn. And I think I got about 25,000 views. That's the most I've ever got. So you made me famous. But you told me that you had 1.5. You said now it went to 1.8 million views. So you're, you're one special man. <laughs> Thank you. Now, when I retired from uh, Goldman Sachs and announced that I was joining Yale as a senior fellow there, at the Jackson Institute, there was 1.83 million views of that particular LinkedIn. That's not my average, but uh, yeah, it, was, it was a crazy response. And I think, I mean, I remember that post and, and I, I must have said well done or whatever, but in a way it was a, it was a surprise because I felt that you were at such a moment in South Africa, really spearheading, let's get this recovery on the road, let's make things happen. And so I suppose in some ways there was this excitement that you're going to lecture, but also um, had you reached that pinnacle in your corporate life where it needed a bit of a change from running Goldman, had you felt like that maybe that the story wasn't educating South Africa anymore or Africa, but, but more educating the rest of the world in terms of what the opportunities were? Well, I'd been 25 years in investment banking and 20 at Goldman Sachs, uh, 10 as a partner. So, you know, it was uh, a time, uh, you know, you, it was time to move on. Um, but many of the things that you've mentioned, you know, I feel like I can have a strong independent voice, just as we're doing now, uh, mm -hmm. talking to the world about the issues that I feel passionately about. You know, I remain... Uh, engage in different ways. I'm chairman of the Youth Employment Service uh, project uh, with Stephen Kossoff, co-chairman, uh, which is, you know, uh, founded by the CEO initiative. So I remain on the steering committee of the CEO initiative. I'm on the board of Fushini Group, the Fushini Group. Uh, I'm a senior advisor to Eurasia. Uh, and various things that are unfolding, I consult to some people. So, you know, I'm, I'm busy in my, continue to be busy just in a different, different way. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm uh, 
you know, writing, publishing, researching, doing a bunch of sort of keynote lectures on various topics and remain close to the business, government, uh, civil society action that's going on. Yeah, I think I think what's clear that is that perception of possibly he's moving away and helping the rest of the world is is um, was uncovered a little bit in an article I read recently that you did for UCT the the ten point plan and the and the critical six points. So I think that sort of debunked my thinking that he's not worried about our challenges. He's he's very much <laughs> there was a lot of effort and energy and thought that went into those points to how do we as a country get over the challenges that we face. And I think you laid out some of those challenges really clearly. Well, thanks. Yeah, I mean, that was you know, an important platform. It was the 2020 open lecture, vice chancellor's open lecture. Um, and so I thought, you know, that given it's an important platform, I should put some energy and effort, particularly given the time that we're in of COVID and the issues that you know, South Africans are feeling uh, to think of what, what, where, where can we go, given the shocks that we've had in society, uh, and so I, um, I put a lot of effort into it. You know, one of the platform issues in the ten point plan, which we will talk about, I'm sure, is the basic income grant. But um, you know, not only did I, you know, work on the policy issues, which I, I spoke at length to tax experts about how we could fund this in a fiscally neutral way and that took quite a lot of energy uh, to do uh, given that I'm not a particularly a tax expert myself uh, but I researched and engaged with a number of the current tax experts um, you know on what's a sense of matter and I think uh, at the end of the day it came out with a really relatively compelling and a well-respected point of view on how to fiscally fund a 140 billion rand basic income grant. Mm. And I mean, I know that at the National Business Awards, when you spoke there last year, you, you, you I mean, you spoke around um, that we need a social compact. And at the time, I'd not really heard it been framed in that manner. And so you really captured my imagination and my thinking and, and, and it sort of aligned with what we do because we bring a lot of the different stakeholders together in our conversations, at our awards, at our conferences. Um, do you think that it's that compact that's going to get this 10 point plan across? Because it felt like there's things that needs to happen, but you know, is it, is it, it's almost settled in a way that with the, you know, with the basic income grant that I think is being put across, I think this, it's universally sort of been discussed as well in America, in other areas, that something like this is something that needs to be explored. But, but is that something that business is going to push or is that more a government or a labour issue that, that needs to, to drive that? Well, it's, I think it's a societal issue. Uh, you know, I think what's important right now is for us to get out of our comfort zones and to take a surgical look back at society and say, where are we and what is needed? If you, if you look at it in a very surgical way, there are already three main challenges we have that are current. The first is defeating COVID, and we're going to have to get a vaccine effective in South Africa and distributed through the population to really eradicate COVID-19. The second is a war on corruption uh, because corruption is contaminating really everything we are doing, including the war on COVID and uh, rescuing the economy, which is the third point. And then the third point is how do we create jobs and how do we effectively rejuvenate an economy that is being devastated by this COVID pandemic, you know, with co a contraction of 0.7.2% forecast for 2020 by the official economic forecast sector. So, you know, uh, if you just take a step back and look at those three challenges and say to yourself, how are we going to do this? Uh, you have to have a social compact, effectively an agreement between arms of society and you need all South Africans to uh, cooperate with 
social distancing, wearing masks and so on to uh, prevent infections the way New Zealand did it. They didn't have a vaccine, but they effectively defeated the pandemic uh, by disciplined social action. Uh, so in a very basic way, you have to have citizenry uh, comply and participate and you have to give them the tools, you know, with the problems of social distancing for those in poor communities or in taxis or whatever, you have to provide people with the tools and you have to police it and, and so on and so forth. So it needs the government, it needs the citizens. Uh, but, you know, for the purpose of the basic income grant, for example, you just step, step back and say, why do we need it? I mean, the reality is we have 170 billion or so spent per annum on child uh, grants and on old age grants, which have been quite effective to 18 million South Africans and been a very important cushion, social welfare cushion in society. But the 18 to 59 bucket, if you're unemployed in the 10.8 million South Africans are unemployed in the 18 to 59 bucket, uh, you aren't getting any grants. And let's be honest, the prospect, if you are between 18 and 59 and are effectively unemployed looking for work or have given up looking for work, the probability of finding it in this environment is extremely remote. So short of condemning people either to poverty or to criminality, um, you have to effectively give them support. And at the same time, as you mentioned earlier, it's a form of stimulus. And in the UK, you know, these stimulus um, measures have not only meant that people are getting paid 80% of their salaries uh, by the government to stay at work, but you go to restaurants, you get a voucher paid for by the government to eat at a restaurant. You know, uh, so, so for us to spend 140 billion rand on the 10.8 million South Africans aged 18 to 59 uh, is not so dramatic. Obviously, we have limited uh, capacity to pay for it. So this is where the work comes in on how do we redistribute the tax net in such a way that you can fiscally neutrally pay for it. So uh, I talk about in this 10 point plan, for example, but this goes to the social uh, compact point. Um, for those families over 600,000 rand of income, you don't, you lose your deduction on retirement funds. Or for those families that have over 300,000 rand of income, you lose your medical aid deductions. Those and various other things fund effectively 140 billion rand you can afford it. But so the, it's called the middle class and the lower uh, upper classes, you know, have to sacrifice a little bit to fund the basic income grant, but you have in return two things, the stimulus to the businesses that are gonna pay VAT, pay tax, get corporate profits, dividends back into the economy from retail, you know, food people, the poor people are going to buy food, they're going to buy clothes, the essential items with their uh, 1,080 rand uh, per month of income. And, you know, at the same time, uh, you're going to get businesses doing better and you're going to get a bit of a stimulus. And at the end of the day, people in wealthy homes are going to feel a little bit safer knowing that the poor have some, some income. That means they don't have to turn to criminality. So I'm giving a bit of a long-winded answer, but we have some time because it's important here to understand the trade-offs that people are, are going to undergo. I don't see it so much as an agreement between trade unions, business, government. I see it as more a citizenry uh, social compact where the wealthy and the middle class agree to give up things for the poor, at the same time, we want everyone to participate in paying taxes. So I talk in the 10-point plan, for example, about smaller micro-enterprises. These are enterprises of maybe five, ten people at a time registering to pay license fees. So you start to get some income and a, a legal, legality in the smaller micro-enterprise or informal trading environment. Uh, and we're going to have to just basically regulated so everybody pays their taxes we don't have tax evasion we crack down on illegal uh, activity in the economy 
Uh, we crack down on crime and we certainly crack down on corruption. The Auditor General talks about, you know, almost 100 billion rand of um, wasteful or improper expenditure at different levels of government in the last reported year. And 100 billion rand, that almost pays for the big if you can crack down on it. So everybody needs to come to the table in a variety of ways, including business and including the ANC. And I'll just finally say, you know, what's a little bit disappointing at the moment is how rigid and set in, uh, in uh, ideological boundaries everyone seems to be. You know, if you look at the ANC's policy document, you know, is very little reaching out to the private sector beyond sort of the old uh, stories about infrastructure and so on, but really bringing the private sector in. And if you look at business, their position uh, paper that Business for South Africa produced had very little appeal to the poor and the unemployed in the form of things like the basic income grant, no mention of extraordinary emergency measures out of the normal box of thinking. So we've all got to get out of our silos and reach across and make this work. How do you, I mean, I, I, I actually really agree with you. And, and it, as a concept, it sounds like something needs to be tested or, um, you know, I, I'm, up, I'm up for the idea of the basic income grant because of the, the measures that you mentioned already. But there are some other areas that we could get funding from as well. So obviously wastage is one of them. And, you know, Auditor General finding wastage is probably way more wastage than that, just in terms like PPE yeah. prices. You know, there's so much we can do in terms of, because if you look at old business models pre-COVID, we were importing so much stuff and skills. And so prices have dropped anyway. But one of the, one of the things that I'm seeing is most organizations have either retrenched or they've got people working part-time. And, 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 and their workforce is essentially being paid less. Yeah. And I think I was a little bit surprised where I saw the public sector giving a general increase of 6% salaries. And we're not really seeing a reduction in efficiencies to the level that you're seeing in the private sector, which is, which is odd for me, because my thinking is that the private sector is paying the taxes for the government to exist. So if the tax base is reducing, surely the amount of employees in public sector should either be reduced or also be on part-time and certainly not be having an increase in salaries. I'm seeing organizations putting caps on no increases and in fact reductions in general salaries. How do so we- I, one, of the interesting, one of the interesting features about COVID is how it's exposed who are the powerful in society and who are not so powerful. And obviously it relates to the power structure of the ruling party, which is obviously an alliance between um, the ANC, Kasati, the trade union, and the South African Communist Party. And the trade unions, really, when you look at the membership, it's public sector. Uh, so if you have a look at why is the public sector doing so well, has to do with their political leverage, has to do with their fact that, you know, the, in many ways, uh, that alliance has delivered Ramaphosa the presidency. You know, without the unions, uh, the balance of forces, which are somewhat anyway, uh, even, you know, evenly balanced, can be tipped, uh, you know, if the president was to lose. So he's got a delicate balancing act to match. Uh, and in COVID, what have we seen? We've seen the taxi industry exercise their power. We've seen the South African Democratic Teachers Union uh, exercise their power in terms of when schools open and when they don't. You know, and, um, and you've seen the public sector unions generally exercising their power to achieve higher wages. In a way, good for them, you know, because if you, you know, the old adage, organize or stop, you know, is very true because, you know, it's really important that um, different sectors of society mobilize their interests. Now, business is mobilizing their interests, and partly you saw that in the early um, 
the early uh, phasing out of the lockdown in the economy. I think it was earlier done than otherwise might have been the case due to business lobbying. Um, now, I think that's fair game, right? You, but you, you've obviously got to be careful in the government that special interests don't override rational behavior. But the reality is, you know, where there's a kind of balance of reasoning over a particular subject, you know, special interests do play a role. So, so it's, um, it's important that people do mobilize, organize, and express themselves. And you see it around corruption. You know, the, the fact is, you know, there's a complete outrage in society about uh, the ruling party having their fingers all over the COVID procurement process of PPE mm. uh, and, you know, outrage from people like Trevor Manuel and Cheryl Carolas and Mabuso Simang, and you have Ace Mangashula, you know, basically saying there's nothing wrong with uh, the ruling party's family and, and uh, allies doing business with the state, which is clearly completely outrageous for him to say, mm. uh, you know, whether it's a case in law or not, the party of Mandela, who clearly had a clear moral leadership of society, you know, has lost it completely. Mm. And it's um, therefore really important that the good people in society right across inside the ANC and outside the ANC make mm. it very clear that we won't accept, you know, the compromising contamination uh, of um, public procurement processes with criminality, which is just totally unacceptable. That also reflects the balance of power at NASREC. You know, I was at NASREC as an observer for Business Leader South Africa. Very clear to me when you looked around the hall, you know, you had an overwhelmingly young uh, group of people. And if you had to do an analysis of who was the people at NASREC and what was their social status, economic income, so on, you know, a lot of people there who have very little economic income and they look at the party as a means to effectively exercise patronage over the economy and uh, their choices of leadership have also to do with, you know, are they going to be able to use the party machinery uh, as a means to achieve their economic objectives? And that in a patronage environment, you know, uh, is why the Zuma economics that I talk about in the 10-point plan has been so appealing. But it costs South Africa, in my humble opinion, 2 trillion rand, not just directly, but indirectly through opportunity cost. Because it's 2011, our economy effectively was over 400 billion US dollars. It's now down at 290 billion. In other words, we've lost over $100 billion of GDP between 2011 and 2020, whereas countries like Poland that I talk about the Tepon plan have added about $200 billion of GDP to their economies in the same time, and they're not that uh, different. So it's like a $300 billion opportunity cost, which is roughly 2 trillion rand uh, in GDP that we've lost due to Zuma economics, uh, which is both, you know, how do we, uh, procure from uh, those that have portions and siphon off and a gerrymander that we, we get our share. And at the same time, close down opportunities for investment, close down opportunities for private sector participation. And that is the background with which the president has now, that's the material he has to work with, mm. on top of which comes COVID to completely disrupt. So we've got a lot of work to do in South Africa, and as you stated and as you hear, just because I'm te teaching a couple of semesters at Yale doesn't now mean that South Africa is far from my reality or my heart. I've basically been uh, in lockdown in South Africa since March anyway, taught online, and you know I'll be going back to teach the final semester. We'll see if the universities stay open through that period. For sure. I saw an interesting article yesterday. It was about two graduates that have set up, they've bought some hotels in Hawaii and somewhere else. And they, they bought these hotels for the graduates to go and study 
so they pay their fees in like a dorm, but it's in a hotel in Hawaii. So I, I, my son's studying. I was saying to him, he, he could have come up with a similar sort of idea, you know, studying in a, in a nice remote area that you want to live in. Everything's changed. But, but I mean, Colin, I mean, understanding some of these things and, and you know, in, in many ways agreeing with you around good on the unions for coming together and collectively bargaining for their benefit. I mean, you know, you've got to applaud that. But at the same time, if we're looking at a social compact and a social issue, if you take that whatever 10% of what they're earning and you add it to this, this national um, plan, uh, would that make an impact? So if, so if all public servants had to take a 10% salary cut, uh -huh. Yeah, and, 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 and that money then went to this fund for the unemployed. Would that make an impact? Because 10% they could, they could probably I manage think, I don't think you can think about it that way. I think you ought to think about it the following way. There was about 1.4 trillion rand of tax revenue forecast for 2020. And with 300 billion rand taken off that, uh, you know, the, to balance the books without getting our deficits to widen significantly over time, it's going to be necessary for that to happen anyway. In other words, uh, the cost containment of government as a general topic, including public sector wages, which is roughly one third of the bill of the government, is going to have to be moderated down. It can't continue to be above inflation uh, increases. So. With inflation now at two and a half, three percent, that's sort of the wage increases the country can afford, which, as you said, is you know roughly half of the increases uh, that they've been getting, uh, you know, historically over the last ten years. Um, the 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 big has to be self-funded. It has to be funded through a redistribution of the tax benefits in a different way. I don't think you can think about it. Otherwise. In other different ways. And then the big issue for the country is you have to get the growth rates going again. Mm -hmm. So you, there's, there's no country in history that has effectively grown this, grown uh, their way out of debt without growing their economy. You have to grow the economy. Mm -hmm. uh, austerity can only achieve so much. Mm -hmm. I, I sort of see it as cost discipline can achieve so much, but you really need to grow the economy. And that's where the other points in the 10-point plan are so important. So, you know, rectifying ESCOM, getting the state-owned enterprise moving, getting infrastructure going, breaking apartheid spatial planning, uh, getting um, uh, the industrial architecture of South Africa uh, reworked so that we have the right incentives for investment. Uh, we get tax-free uh, export zones moving but really working and competing. And we use the advantages of the climate and the lifestyle of South Africa to get our tourism and export industry moving. Uh, these are some of the things that we've got to get, you know, effectively I talk about 5 million new jobs, permanent jobs uh, created in the next 10 years in order to bring our unemployment, the narrow unemployment rate, excluding for those who've given up looking for work, back down below 20%. Uh, you know, just in context, since 1994, our narrow unemployment rate has averaged around 23, 24% and spiked to 30% pre-COVID uh, due to, you know, uh, very low economic growth in South Africa for the last five years. So, I mean, I mean there's, there's all these big challenges, but also you laid out your plan. And when I read through each of those six points, I was like, yes, 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 yes. Like, I'm agreeing. And, and it's like, for me, it's like common sense in many ways. It's not rocket science what you're proposing, and it's practical. And then I think to myself, I can't stop. I keep on thinking to myself, why do we talk and there's not enough action? How do we drive this? How do we accelerate it? We talk about growth. And, you know, I, I interviewed a guy um, from the States who implemented digital transformation at Procter & Gamble. And he wrote a book called Why Digital Transformation Fails. And he basically felt that one of the key reasons 70% of companies fail at digital transformation is because of speed. So their runway is too long. They're not getting that, that 
speed up quickly to take off and to accelerate their growth. And I almost get that same sense from business. You know, if you look at startups, if they're not growing quickly, if there's not that sense of urgency and energy around things, then it takes too long. And I almost get this, this, this sense that we need to now accelerate some of the suggestions that you've made. And I, and I wasn't sure. Well, there's if some, it there's some basic things, right? Because, you know, for business to succeed, you need low cost, reliable energy. You need ports that export goods quickly or import items efficiently. Uh, you need your infrastructure to work. You need your basic security and law and order systems to prevail, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. So they're those kind of basics. Uh, and in some ways, South Africa is struggling because of the hollowing out of institutions in the state with that. Now, I think there's a lot of good stuff. I mean, the foundations have been put in place, uh, you know, with regards to much of the reforms, including the Zondo Commission, but then, uh, you know, new boards at ESCOM and this and that, and the unbundling plans and so on. But a lot more energy is needed to get the uh, reforms underway. And there's no excuse for the telecommunications spectrum not, a, not to have been effectively auctioned, for the fifth renewable round of energy procurement to have happened. They, these are basic things that, that need to happen. And one uh, might be forgiven for thinking that the mix of skills in the government system is wrong. And, you know, I would just say from a Goldman Sachs experience, from my Yale experience, when you look at South Africa's uniqueness in emerging markets, one of the things that stands out is the sophistication of our industrial and financial architecture in this country relative to other emerging markets. We have strong banks, strong liquidity. Clear, in general terms, financing is not an issue for, for uh, establishing and funding projects. Uh, and then the second thing uh, is that the cadre of management in the private sector is extremely strong. You know, you don't create the NASPRESS of the world, the SAP pillars of the world, uh, the shop rights of the world with poor uh, management talent. We have massive management talent, including in the banking system. Uh, and it's really exceptional and outstanding on an international scale. So the question is, if we have a surplus of management talent in the country, in the private sector, why do we have a deficit of management talent in the state? Now, that doesn't mean that all management in the private sector is good or all management in the public sector is bad, but there certainly should be much better integration of the talent into the public sector to get the wheels of the economy moving. But again, it comes back to ideological questions of trust and vision and strategy. You know, if you don't trust your talented white and black managers in the private sector to come and fix the public sector, um, you know, it's to your detriment, I would say. So as an economy, South Africa needs to be a little bit more pragmatic, a little bit more unified. There needs to be a lot more confidence and trust and percolation intersection between the public and the private sectors to get things moving. Uh, and I would hope that we can see more of that uh, into the future. The other aspect is obviously where there is continued erosion of institutional capacity, either through criminality or through incapacity. You know, get rid of the deadwood. It's very important. That's where we go back to the public sector unions. You know, they're earning more, but they're not that accountable. So if teachers aren't coming to a class or their principals are drunk in the schools or whatever, they should be fired. Mm. And new principals put in place who are doing their jobs. We can't have a generation of students getting low quality education, forcing out the trick pass rates to go down to below 50%. It's ludicrous. We should be maintaining high standards and holding uh, the people we're paying lots of money in the education and health sector to account. Uh, we absolutely should do that. I mean, I was speaking to the guys at Old Mutual, Ian, the new CEO there. He was the, the acting CEO for a while. And I mean, they spent about 300 million on education. And one of the things they found is that when they supported in terms of mentoring and coaching 
these principals of the worst performing schools in outlying areas, that actually they were able to double the pass rate and in some cases create from a 0% pass rate in some schools to 100% just by focusing on the leadership of those schools. And that was an intervention by business to help. And I, and I almost get the impression that there's a lot business can do. And I suppose that's where I really want to fixate my energy because I almost get a sense that, you know, when I talk about social compact, I feel that the, the business world seems to have a lack of trust with government because of the things like corruption and, you know, patronage and all those sorts of things. But it's almost like, well, we still need to fix this thing. It's not like we can just, you know, wait for those things to fix themselves. What can we do to also be part of the solution? Um, it's great to identify the, the problem, but then the only, the only reason to identify the problem is if you're going to solve it. And I think that's what in many ways businesses do. They're there to solve problems. If it's government problems, if it's social problems, whatever problems it's got. Look, I think philanthropy has its role, but it's also just tinkering on the edges. Uh, what I talk about in the 10-point plan is a far more systemic uh, way for us to um, get a much higher quality service, and that is an e-government platform. Yeah. So, you know, I, if you just take a step back, the COVID world has been one where the world of technology has been accelerated hugely. That's where you've seen Amazon, you've seen Microsoft, even Tencent, Nespresso's investment, you know, uh, really outshine. Uh, and it's quite incredible to see the standard S&P 500 back where it was uh, pre-COVID. Uh, and that's a function of two things. One, it's Fed stimulus, but two, it's really about the big fang companies in the S&P 500 driving, uh, driving the index because many of the non-technology companies have not done very well. And then the technology companies have just outshone. And living in New York, you know, you experience the power of Amazon in terms of delivering everything into your home. Uh, and you understand the power of Uber and you understand the power of, uh, you know, all these online consumer uh, facilitation mechanisms. But I can tell you, uh, I was at Davos in uh, 1997 and uh, Sony's CEO, Bill Gates, Larry Ellison were all on a panel. And in 1997, they basically said, look, the internet is going to revolutionize the world. Um, we don't know what platform is going to basically carry this revolutionary uh, instrument, uh, which turned out to be the mobile phone. But we know it's going to revolutionize in every way in which consumption happens in the world and lifestyles and so on and so forth. Now, you know, 23 years later, we see exactly what they were talking about. Now, I could sit here and forecast to you that in the next 23 years, you're going to see governments change their service mechanisms entirely. And I would predict in 23 years, the idea of having going to any office or police station or home affairs office or, uh, you know, perhaps even to clinics or schools for education and health is going to be something in the past. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have this available to you online. So if you're some kid getting poor education because your uh, teaching system is poor in person, you're going to get that kid going online to get Harvard or Yale or Penn uh, quality uh, schooling and university mm -hmm. education online for free. Yeah. And, and you're going to get your health system online and you're going to get you know, a fingerprinted biometric system uh, on phones, delivering IDs, traffic fines, and so on and so forth. And that is all happening, by the way, in China today, which is mm -hmm. part of the reason why they were able to control the society's movements, how dense uh, the populations were in cities like Beijing or Shanghai, uh, and, and control uh, people's movements. Now, that might bring around privacy and security concerns as I talk about it, which obviously must be managed. But the truth is that it has huge advantages for, uh, for people to be able to uh, go online and manage their portfolio of interactions with the government online. 
uh, and not have to go your domestic worker or whatever, go for a day off to go to some clinic somewhere to get a script so they can get the diabetes medicine. That's, it should be all available and much more efficient. And that will mean, Ralph, that you won't have to employ this number of public sector employees uh, doing these kinds of jobs and will release money to be able to have more frontline public sector workers, meaning police, police on the streets uh, and people in places they actually really need, need to be. So this is not something that's I'm forecasting in a vacuum without international precedent. There are countries who are very actively doing this, uh, particularly in Scandinavia, Italy, and others that have done it without talking about it, like China. I mean, I can't help but think, if I look back like you just did, and I look to the future, and I look at all the challenges that people maybe leave the country or talk about or consume us, which is security, corruption, education, health. If I look at those four components, and I look at technology and what it could be like in five or 10 years time, let's just take security, for instance. You know, I know many estates are using bonuses. <laughs> Only in Africa can you hear that. You yeah, see, this it's is the hardy doors at work. Sorry about that. In Johannesburg. So, I mean, for, for me, I look at the challenges that we're facing, the things, the immediate concerns that we really have, and I think, well, you know, technology can easily fix that into the future. It's just a, a net about when we adopt it. And I think it will be, in many ways, like most things, competitively forced upon us. You know, if a, a country's getting it right, they'll be pushing that technology on to us. But then it does get me a little bit worried about job creation. Because if those facilities, technology is taking care of it, it does worry me a little bit. And that's why I'm probably more engaged with that basic grant for living, you know, living grant. But then it, it would well, need a, a reskilling. I, I think there's a relationship between these different levels. So obviously the basic income grant deals with people that are not in work. Then, the, then this re recrafting of the industrial architecture, looking at special export zones and creating these 5 million jobs is really about creating jobs that are displacing jobs that would otherwise be created in places like China, but with the outsourcing um, of that, because supply chains in the world now are exposed. You don't want to have an over-reliance on one supply chain network, say in China. So we can position ourselves, you know, as a, let's say African time zone supply chain provider with a sophisticated infrastructure, financial and other infrastructure, legal infrastructure for that. Then I think we start to, to create those kind of jobs. And then, and then you, we're going to have to, you know, deal with the reality that some of these jobs are going to be lost in the economy too far or too far for IR. And, the nature of manufacturing in the world is going to go become much more robotic for sure. Mm. Uh, but that'll take time. Mm. Um, and so there's kind of a redistribution of resources and strategy to take account of the fact that there are many people who are not going to have jobs. There's some people are going to have highly skilled jobs like the robotic job that you see data centers. South Africa has um, a, promising future in data centers. We have some data centers. I, at Golden Sachs, I sold uh, one data center for, owned by a private equity group to another and they made you know, five times their money. It was a very good investment. And it's a great uh, environment and society for data center providers and you know, Amazon and others are building there. So I think there's a you know, very promising future in some areas of high skill, high touch technology. And then you know, we're going to have to compete for uh, the manufacturing base of Africa for the time zone. And there, I must say, you know, Imre Patel and the president's kind of vision for um, an integrated African trade zone with less borders, less uh, rules, um, and less inhibitions to trade uh, and to movement of people is really important because, you know, South Africa is 60 million people, but if we can really access the 1.2 billion in Africa, it really makes a difference. And on top of that, if you, if you can go to an Apple and say, we're well, an Ikea, 
come and build your manufacturing plant in South Africa. We could get easy access and logistically efficient access to the markets in Africa. And, you know, we can use this as a cheap manufacturing point into Europe, into the same time zone. Then you've got something that is quite appealing. Obviously, mm. that's easier to say than to make work. Mm. Uh, but that's the direction the road of travel that I think is necessary. And I think I spoke to Leila Faree, the new CEO of the JSC. She's yeah. obviously got similar sentiments, getting investments from the East, driving a new platform that's available to SMEs and to all investors and really driving out opportunities into the rest of Africa as well, getting funders. How important is the overseas investment community to driving our growth versus South African organizations? Because the money's dried up, but... It, you know, where's it gone? Is, is it about, is it about our organizations investing in these projects? Is it us pushing those things to, you know, who needs to move first? Is, is it, are we going to wait for government to change the legal parameters or to create these infrastructure projects? You talk about the public private partnerships, looking at RFQs, or, or is it more that actually we need to just invest in our own country first? private sector has to start these initiatives now? It's not like we don't have a, uh, an economy. We have a dynamic economy. It's, you know, it, it, it has a huge lot more potential. So we just need to switch on the levers. We need to switch on those levers domestically that we control, like the energy problem, ESCOM and, and the ports and those basic functions of, you know, cost of transport, cost of energy. How do we move? goods and services from point A to point B in as quick and as cheap a way as possible. And, and we need to create, you know, a much more stable environment for our mining uh, and agriculture to export uh, mining products and agricultural products to the rest of the world. But we also want, you know, these global companies, the car manufacturers, telecommunications, the industrial guys, the logistics guys, the technology people, uh, oil and gas uh, to be active in South Africa and to see South Africa as the championing platform into Africa, which is, you know, really my, my course at Yale is called doing business in Africa, the last frontier of, for global growth for a reason, which is, you know, we have 1.2 billion people, which is 17% of the world's population. That's going to grow by the end of this century to 40% of the world's population in this century because the rest of the world's population is declining. Ours is growing hugely in Africa. And yet we have currently only 3% of the world's GDP. But if we have 40% of the world's population, that is going to inevitably grow significantly, which is a massive demographic dividend into the future. And global multinationals will want to participate. In. The other flip end of that is that if we keep even, even if when we reach 40% of the world's population, the GDP share is, let's say, 10% of the world's GDP, that is a recipe for a human catastrophe and for, uh, you know, a huge amount of conflict uh, in the world because you can't have 40% of the world's population with only 10% of the world's GDP. But it's both an opportunity and a threat to the world. I've talked about that in a lecture I gave at Yale University as well. And, you know, this dynamic of the contest between China and the United States is the two world's biggest economies around Africa. It's kind of a false dichotomy because actually China is obviously now sustainably in the lead relative to the US. The US is doing more than one thinks because it's more invested in aid, it's more invested uh, in trade, it's more invested in the military, it's more invested uh, in investment than one thinks. And the lecture sort of demonstrated that. But at the same time, what you want is you want the world's G7 countries to work together rather than compete and to work in cooperation with Africa. And obviously, President Ramaphosa, the African Union chair, has a critical role to play in steering and coordinating that and encouraging it. But you, we really need the world to work with Africa to make Africa's opportunities come uh, real and stable for threats. And I mean, you spoke about interest rates for SMEs and, and dropping some of those, but what about interest rates for African countries? 
I mean, is that going to then indirectly give them a more competitive advantage if we lower those interest rates? Because I think on the one side is that risk profile and, you know, the investment profile for the bonds, international bonds. But at the same time, from to, for the local South Africans to invest in property, to invest in, you know, appreciating assets, not depreciating assets, but appreciating assets and giving that sense of ownership. Is it not an opportunity to lower interest rates in those sorts of those sorts of asset classes so that we drive more? Well, you know, in the last 20 years in Africa, I would say in general, uh, there have been two phenomena. One is the monetary and fiscal discipline in the economies have generally improved significantly. And with it, interest rates have improved, although you have very high interest rates in Nigeria, for example. I think it's like 15% relative to South Africa's you know, around about 4% uh, inflation, something like that. Um, and, but generally speaking, the, uh, the line of travel is, is an improving interest and inflation uh, environment and therefore cost of capital is coming down in Africa. Mm-hmm. And secondly, you have a huge amount of appetite in the world for, for issuance in general across emerging markets and in Africa specifically. So while as at Goldman Sachs, you know, we did a $3 billion bond issue for Angola. I think JP Morgan and various other banks did many others for African countries. Um, so much so there's obviously now a discussion in the media about whether these African countries are over-indebted, over-reliant on Chinese capital, so on and so forth. But I think the, um, the environment is improving and generally the fiscal and monetary environment has been better run in many of these countries. So, uh, you know, relative to where we were in the eighties and the seventies, uh, in Africa. So I think if that, if that does improve, you'll see, uh, you know, the cost of capital for countries, equity and debt capital, uh, coming down, uh, which is obviously very good for business. Is it not a great time now? I mean, if I look at South Africa's debt to GDP, it's one of the lowest, if you look at it like established markets, like compared to Japan, for instance, like 256, we're like, I think 90% or or 80%. Is is this not the opportunity to invest really strongly in those infrastructure, that e-commerce that you talk around, the ports, ESCOM, and and use this opportunity while there is cheaper debt cheaper debt essentially around now to drive this economy, to drive the growth and to, and, and to maybe be brave in this moment? Well, answer is yes and no, or put differently, yes, within limits. Uh, because you, you know, the problem with the Greece phenomenon, the Greek phenomenon post global financial crisis is once your debt spiral, you know, kicks in, which is, the rate at which you're effectively paying back your debt, you have to borrow to pay your interest on, on your debt, then you're in lots of trouble. And, you're, and it, it's not a linear line. You don't take on debt and then it just continues to go at the same rate. It's an exponential thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And you just don't want to get into that exponential environment where it just suddenly like spikes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, us going effectively to 80% you know, how do we arrest going above 100%? Um, you know, now the UK, the US and Japan are anywhere between 140 and 250% debt to GDP. That shouldn't encourage us to now become... Uh, you know, <laughs> and they've got low interest rates. Yeah, they've got low interest rates. They've got very dynamic economies, you know, much more resilient uh, and, and sophisticated economies. So they, they can managed to absorb that. And in the past, you must remember, the way in which the US has managed to absorb uh, the debt is through growth. That's what I've said earlier, because yeah. the, their, gr- their growth outstrips uh, their, their, their debt. The, the debt starts to come down, the debt to GDP starts to come down. So we have to be, there's this very fine balance between uh, overcutting and becoming an aust- you know, a path of austerity, which basically means that growth drops and your debt to GDP then goes up mm. um, versus overspending and losing uh, control of the debt and your debt just spirals beyond control. 
So what, what you want to do is basically moderate in such a way as you discipline your spending in ways that we talked about in the wages and so on and so forth and get greater bang for your buck on what you do spend on and cut down on criminality and cut down on corruption and wasteful expenditure and you become a lot tighter. That's what you want. At the same time, it's releasing funds into productive investment in infrastructure, in the areas of e-government and and other areas which are investments. Uh, and the best countries have also kept significant investment into research and development. The South yeah. Korea, for example, uh, you know, the best countries have made uh, long-term investments in research and development, and that's created a lot of long-term growth opportunities for those countries. But that's obviously what we're talking about now, the art of you know, every finance minister, uh, every governor of the Reserve Bank uh, in, in every country. The good ones get it right, the bad ones, you know, don't. I'm glad you brought that up. So you talked around people within the formal sector, the corporate market not going into government. Is there, is there, is there any reason why that you shouldn't be the next finance minister or you shouldn't be taking on any public service? I know that you're part of the Yes Initiative, but, but how, how real could that be to get you into the public service? There's, I mean, the, you could be asking that question of a hundred equivalents of mine in the business sector. And in general, uh, as a principle, uh, business people should engage. And she, when called upon, like in the United States, you've got Steve Mnuchin, uh, you had uh, 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 Ruben, you had Larry Summers, you know, many academics or business people in high office in various countries. Mark Carney, who's a former colleague of mine at Goldman Sachs, uh, you know, um, governor of England and then moved on. Uh, there are many people who go from the private sector into high office in, in government sector. I mean, the critical thing is, if you do that, you have to be serious about giving those people authority. You can't stick them in some office and expect them to work magic without giving them a clear mandate to do it. And I, I would think that South African business in general, CEOs of South African businesses, um, you know, should should have that kind of openness that after they've served uh, their companies, they should serve their countries. Um, so, you know, that's then a question of, is the society utilizing the talents it has uh, in that sort of way? And, and people should keep an open mind. You know, Jack and Marie, for example, is an envoy, Trevor Manuel is an envoy to the president. Uh, so there are kind of uh, ways in which that happens and generally one serves in a way that one can. I think there seems to be an overwhelming amount of CEOs who've either retired recently or moved on that the public service or certainly the state-owned enterprise could benefit from their expertise um, and what they've implemented. Because obviously leadership is so important, especially as we're seeing now. Um, just, I mean, lastly, just talking about entrepreneurship, because I, I know that you, you said that we need to create these 5 million jobs. And for me, if I look at, at, look at the big corporates, I see they're under pressure. They're under pressure with the existing people they have. You know, governments are under pressure with existing people they have. So where's this new jobs going to come from? I, I often think that one of the bigger opportunities for South Africa, and I, I see it, as a flavor in the rest of Africa, is to drive more of a culture of entrepreneurship. So I know that you say support SMMEs, and I look at them slightly differently to entrepreneurs or startups, um, because they're more established over a couple of years, but how do we drive, and, and is it through something like the YES initiative that we create some form of entrepreneurship? If I look at my children, when they're doing their school, um, uh, festivals, they're building things, they're making things, they're selling things. I can see the, the entrepreneur within them or not. You know, the guy that's either selling something and making it and, and having pleasure. Is that a big opportunity, do you think, creating this culture? Let me try and capture it. I mean, the informal SME sector, again, for that UCT speech that I researched, it spoke to a lot of people. It's very large in South Africa. Actually, over 11 million South Africans are involved in informal, formal SME sector, overwhelming percentage of which is informal. So these are sort of 
two to you know, 10 employee business, maybe is going as much as 100 employees in a business. Uh, and you know, the key things for them are basic infrastructure, things like water or uh, free internet or subsidized internet. That would make a big difference to, uh, again, the technology and, and, and internet infrastructure has been a theme of this discussion. Um, and that's very important. And obviously, to the extent that we get infrastructure moving, in, to the extent we break the spatial pattern of apartheid, and to the extent we get our special export zones going, that's also going to unleash smaller micro enterprises. And by the way, the extent to which we take on criminality, uh, people not paying their suppliers, uh, getting uh, state-owned enterprises to pay their people on time, that itself will be a, a big stimulus. So these things are all reinforcing uh, in of itself. Then there's the kind of more uh, established sector uh, SMEs, uh, you know, startups and venture capital and, and all of that sort of mm -hmm. thing. Where I think South Africa, because of our two-speed economy and having this more sophisticated, non-racial, um, highly mobile segment of our society that is quite skilled, is well-suited to venture capital and SMEs and technology startups and so on. And you see it in Stellenbosch, for example, mm. uh, and the things that people like Michael Jordan and others are, are busy on. Uh, you know, it's quite a vibrant, and again, I mentioned the data centers, there's quite a vibrant capacity in the economy to support those. So I think for both the informal sector, which is again, the kind of uh, less sophisticated side of things, just doing the basics to get that supported. And then on the more sophisticated side, for the private sector work, it's magic in supporting startups. My mm. son has a, a startup in, uh, schools called Subjects, S-U-B-J-E-X, which is basically uh, providing tools to high school students uh, to effectively uh, provide more content to them in doing two things. One, supporting their schoolwork, uh, and secondly, helping them cho choose subjects as they stream into uh, university and distinguishing them between which subjects suit the particular a student before they choose them. So it's both in choosing and then in studying them that this technology works. And, you know, it, it's complete innovation. It's had to be supported through, uh, through funding, which he sourced from third parties. It, it's fantastic. But that kind of energy and innovation can unleash a huge amount of positive energy in, and productivity in South Africa. So I, I think, you know, there's lots... The good news is we're coming off a low base and there's lots to shoot for. You know, there's a lot that can be done to unleash. So that is a little bit stuck, you know, right now. And you know, I often talk to my government friends and I say, come on, guys, we must get going. You know, this is mm. time to really focus. Why are we not spending, you know, hours around the table, sorting out ESCOM or hours around the table, injecting, working out how to inject this extra 100 billion rand from the loan guarantee scheme into equity in businesses or loan or you know interest free loans uh, into businesses that desperately need it let's get going you know, get the energy going so i mean was was your son's app called subjects s-u-b-x j-e-x j-e-x yeah my son's 13 and he's asking me about which subjects to choose and the other one's 16 more or less doing the same thing so i'm going to that yeah I'm going to get him onto the app, but but I mean, I look at your plan and I'm like, wow, it, it makes sense. I like it. What what action? So, if people are listening to this podcast, what action do you think is required now from business people and people in government to make sure we adopt and implement that plan? Well, it's, it's, it's obviously a range of actions to implement different parts of this steps yeah. but we need to get energy the most important short-term ones would be one getting this uh, 100 billion rand loan so we need to get businesses banks the Saab the national treasury agreeing you know, how to unlock this money and getting an economy in the short term 
Two, we need to get ESCOM fixed. So we need to get Parliament Public Enterprise, the National Treasury, ESCOM, and the banks and the institutions all agreeing a plan, and the coal industry, uh, mm. and the unions. And we need to get everybody around a table and thrash it out and get an agreement. It doesn't need to take months. You know, it's mm. like, in my mind, it's like a sovereign debt negotiation. Mm. You know, when you, when you know on a Friday that on Monday your country is going under because you don't have the money unless you can negotiate a deal with the IMF to get it. You know, you will be working right through the weekend and on Sunday night you'll be announcing before the markets open. We've got to have that attitude. We've got to have the attitude. We, on Monday morning, we have to announce something. Or mm. in six weeks, we have to announce something mm. and work to that kind of mindset. And then the third thing on the basic income grant, we need to, we need to urgently agree the modalities, the scope. Uh, I talked about in the 10-point plan, you know, do we give it to 32 million South Africans at 350 rand a month? Or do we give it to 23 million working adults uh, at uh, 500 rand a month? Or do we give it just to the unemployed uh, 10.8 million at, one, so at, at 1,080 rand a month? So, but we have a set pot, you know, who do, who do we really need to target? That's economists and social workers and the government need to work it out. We need to work out. So do we agree with these tax reforms? And, you know, what are the modalities of implementing that and making the amendments and what does SARS think and so on and so forth? So there's a lot of work that needs to be done on the modalities and the implementation mechanisms and we need to get going. So just those three examples, you can see there's a lot of work that practically needs to be done. But you have to start off saying, I want to do it. You know, I want to get going. I have a timeline that I know is urgent and I need to get. And in this time of COVID, everything is urgent. I mean, we are in a crisis. That's, you know, the first lines of my UCT speech were, you know, uh, South Africa, you know, is in real trouble. We, we have, a, we ha we, we have a, a bunch of challenges that we need to get right. Number one is defeating COVID. Number two, defeating corruption, number three, getting the economy going. Hmm. That basic grant for 10 million people sounds like the right one, but I think what we need to do is add a clause in there that those people who are receiving it need to do something back for the state, i.e. a thousand rand of their time. So if they're unemployed, what can they do to help the state back? Could be cleaning up litter, could be doing something of, of a minor task to, to create some value from that investment. See, you coming up with ideas, so that's a good thing. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, the view's been spectacular. So for all those people, they really get a sense of how beautiful Africa is because that is one stunning view you've got there. But it was great to speak to you again um, and really great to have this conversation. I think that South Africa, not just Yale, but South Africa needs to tap more into you know, your expertise, I think. That's my, my feeling. Absolute pleasure and all the best to you and your listeners.